The Electorette is brought to you by you. Seriously, it's listeners like you who inspire me to keep going. And if you're one of Electorette's newest Patreon supporters, I'd like to sincerely thank you. Your support means everything, and it helps Electorette continue to amplify the voices of women. And if you'd like to become a new supporter of Electorette, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash electorette. There are some great bonuses there for patrons at all levels. And again, I want to thank all of my listeners so much from the bottom of my heart. And I hope you enjoy the show. I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorette. Today, my conversation is with Lisa Hunter. She's a candidate for city council in D.C.'s Ward 6. Lisa Hunter is one of those inspiring women who was moved to run for office, of course, by our current administration, and the increasing inequality she saw all around her. Inequality for women, inequality in healthcare, housing. She's been endorsed by Run for Something and the American Women's Party. It's women like Lisa Hunter who give me hope for our future. And frankly, we need more candidates like her. I think you'll find her story inspiring. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Lisa Hunter. Lisa Hunter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, so you've worked in political campaigns in the past, right? You were a field organizer, I think, with Obama's campaign. And then you joined the administration mm-hmm. at the Department of Health and Human Services. But you did this while you were in graduate school at night. How did you pull that off? Honestly, <laughs> a lot of, um, well, I had the support of an amazing, at the time, boyfriend and then fiance, but also I think just no sleep. You get used to not sleeping <laughs> and you figure it out and you multitask and you you get through it. Right. Kind of like now you're running for office. You probably don't get a lot of sleep now, presumably. Yeah, that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody in our household gets a lot of sleep except for our dog. <laughs> I was going to say, and the kid, kids always get lots of sleep, right? And, you know, we adults, maybe. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But do you remember the moment that you definitively decided to run, right? When that moment when it crystallized for you? Yeah, I do remember that moment. I mean, there had been a few uh, flashpoints leading up to the decision. Um, I had seen our council basically take a few votes that were pretty, you know, lacked the sort of compassion that I hope to bring to DC council. And then I had been following on Twitter. It's so funny. It's like all about Twitter, but I had been following on Twitter, the councilman for our ward, our representative on the DC council. And it was the day that Joe Arpaio was pardoned by president Trump. And it was particularly harsh. I think for everybody in the United States, just having their president tell them that their civil rights don't matter. But for me personally, you know, my dad's Jewish, my mom's Mexican American. And on my mom's side of the family, they are like one of the founding, we are one of the founding families in Tucson, Arizona. And so Joe Arpaio is sort of like the devil incarnate for us. And having a family that has been subject to discrimination and racial profiling and seeing that on the border, you know, going to Tucson growing up all the time, um, having Joe Arpaio pardoned was particularly difficult on a personal level. And as as someone who identifies as a Latina, like it was not, um, it was a tough day. And that was the day that our council member tweeted something to the effect of on the bright side or the silver lining is, you know, when a president starts to pardon people, it means they're closer to the end of their term. And I just remember saying to my husband, that's it. That's not leadership. That's insensitive. I'm running. And just using that sort of as a, you know, 
stake in the ground. Like we deserve better. I live in the District of Columbia. We are one of the most progressive places. A lot of us are primarily focused on federal policy, but when it comes to local politics and the kinds of leaders that we should be electing, we should have the best and brightest from our community representing us. And a comment like that was just really insensitive and tone deaf and speaks to, I think, a larger issue, which is that our DC council is not fairly representing our community. So that's a lot of the reason why I decided to to jump into this race. Yeah. So one of your top campaign issues actually is tipped minimum wage. And I think everybody understands this now, but just for people who don't, that just means that people who are working as servers or waiters, you know, they get, I think it's something, it's still around $2 an hour or two fifteen an hour. And, you know, the, the expectation being that, you know, the tips will make up for their income. But what I didn't know is actually they have to receive at least $30 a month in tips, which is, which is nothing, right? Um, yeah. yeah. So just a, um, a minor correction, which is in DC, uh, the tip minimum wage right now is $3.33 an hour. And so your employer, if you're a server, your employer is supposed to make up the difference between $3.33 and the minimum wage today. And what we know is that oftentimes that's not happening, especially when a server doesn't hit the amount of tips that they need to be able to make ends meet. And this is a hot button issue right now in the district because, you know, we fought this battle a few years ago and And what resulted was we raised the overall minimum wage for the district to $15 an hour starting in 2020. And that's a massive triumph, I think, because, um, you know, that goes a long way to helping people stay in our community and not feel like they have to leave, but only come in to work here. But we've left tipped workers behind and they were sort of the bargaining chip coming out of that policy change that the council voted on. And so now I am running basically elevating tip minimum wage is an issue that is critical to ensuring that our servers are not treated as second class and that they that they are protected financially and economically and have the stability to remain in our community. And so when you think about the tip minimum wage, you think about who it disproportionately impacts. It's women, it's people of color, it's also low-wage workers. And I was really disappointed to learn um, and read in the Washington Post that my opponent actually you know, the first question out of his mouth when tip minimum wage came up was, well, how is this going to impact business? And that's Mm -hmm. not the kind of approach that I would take as a legislator. I think I would be primarily concerned with the people in the community ahead of business. And so that's where we differ. And the voters are actually going to have a chance to, to cast a ballot on it because we now have a ballot initiative that will be, that will be coming up on election day to eliminate the tip minimum wage, which is um, exciting. And it's, uh, it bodes well for my campaign as well, because I've been talking about it ever since I launched. So, you know, I, that response is really telling, right? I mean, it's obvious who the audience is when you ask, you know, who is this going to affect, you know, how is it going to affect businesses? That's a clear message to, you know, certain members of your, your constituency, right? Um, Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it just, it's, um, I think it's a failure on the part of our government to leave tipped workers behind, especially when you think about, you know, who this is impacting disproportionately, but also just, you know, I've talked to so many restaurant workers in the district who, who are barely making ends meet, who have to live with several roommates, um, who are, you know, struggling, trying to do the right thing, but you know, the systems and the structures and the regulations in place are not there to protect them. And what ends up happening is that, 
you know, we end up having a lot of people leave our community to go live somewhere else that's more affordable. But I firmly believe that in Washington, uh, we have neighbors here and we, we are progressives that, you know, if it means a couple of extra bucks for a pretzel or a coffee, I think we would gladly take that on as consumers because we would we would want to be ensured that the people serving us are earning a living wage and not teetering on the on the threshold of poverty or in poverty. Right. But there's also a connection between the tipped minimum wage or increasing it and, and sexual harassment. What's the connection there? So uh, what we found is that in a bunch of jurisdictions that have already passed a raised tip minimum wage or the elimination of a tip minimum wage. So Seattle is one of them. We've seen businesses doing well. In fact, they're, the restaurant businesses are thriving. But we've also seen a reduction in um, sexual harassment cases that are brought forward to the EEOC. And so there is a clear correlation I won't say causation, but there's a correlation between, you know, if you feel like as a server, you have to basically flaunt your body in order to make a living versus you have the stability and the guarantee of the minimum wage, a living minimum wage, then, you know, the incidences of sexual harassment go down and we see retaliation go down and it's just safer. And I think better for everybody. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is that that's kind of an, an open secret, right? If you've ever worked in, in this industry, I, I waited tables shortly when I was in college. And, you know, it's no secret to anyone who works there that that your appearance and gender, how people perceive you as a woman, it yeah. directly correlates to, you know, your earnings. Exactly. <laughs> you know? And so that's kind of an open secret. Right. Exactly. And you see a lot of the restaurant community, you know, really fighting back against eliminating the tip minimum wage or raising the tip minimum wage. And it's it it doesn't make sense uh, to me just because they call it holding on to your tips. We want to make sure our servers hold on to their tips. And that's, you know, that's not something that's going to go away. People will still be paying for services or for um, for food or what have you, but they will also be receiving tips on top of that. And so it really is just an extra protection for servers to be able to earn a living wage. Yeah. So one issue that, that you're focusing on that is particularly hard for women is the absence of a family leave. I think new mothers mm-hmm. are only granted at the federal level, I think eight weeks versus the 12 weeks that are recommended by doctors. And, you know, when I when I read that, I mean, I understand that being a woman and being a mother, but I just wonder how policymakers justify not even following the medical recommendation. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. I had a friend, a mom friend of mine tell me that in some states, the, the rules are that you cannot actually adopt a dog before they reach eight weeks because <laughs> for medical reasons, they can't be wow. um, left without their mother weaning. Uh, and so, I, you know, I hate to draw that kind of parallel, but it was very a very glaring example of the misalignment of how we really are treating our families. So, as you said, the Family Medical Leave Act is a federal floor, and states can actually go above and beyond what is provided to people who are taking family leave. But as you said, it's it's only I believe eight weeks, and it's not paid. I think you know when I think about our federal law, it's largely around um, ensuring that people will not can take leave without fear of getting fired from their job. Like I said, it has, it's not financial. There's no financial benefit to it. And so what you see is a lot of the reasons that people are able to take paid family leave is because of their employers. I think that's fundamentally not where we need to be as a community. I think 
it shouldn't be up to your employer or where you work, whether or not you are afforded paid family leave. And when we talk about paid family leave, a lot of people say, or a lot of people think automatically it's parents of newborns. You know, it doesn't just end there. You know, if you have a sick parent or a sick child, or if you yourself need to take leave um, to uh, recover from an illness or recover from some sort of trauma, those are the kinds of things that can fall under this kind of policy. And so in the district, in 2016, advocates fought fiercely to get a, a DC-wide paid family leave policy. The policy itself affords up to eight weeks of paid leave. Unfortunately, when the bill was originally introduced in the council, it was 16 weeks of paid leave. And we know, you know, science tells us that the longer you have a newborn with their mother or with their parents, the better it is for everybody, for bonding, but also for um, their health and for you know the reduction of stress and all their numerous benefits to having at least 12 weeks of paid leave. In the end, we got eight weeks and we also got, uh, I believe it's two, four weeks for a sick family member and then I think two weeks for an individual. You might have to check me on that. But nevertheless, it's not enough time. And I think the other problem that we're seeing is it's 2018. We haven't implemented anything yet. We are starting to allocate funding. We're seeing that there are regulations that are coming out of the agency. But this slow walking of the bill actually becoming a law and then the law actually becoming a, a program is frankly too slow. And a lot of parents and a lot of families that I talk to every single day, this is a kitchen table conversation. This is something that really impacts the well-being of our families. And we ought to be doing everything we can to make sure we can help families today, not just into the future. Yeah. You know, when I talk to you and I talk to other candidates and I, and I talk to these issues, it just amazes me. Like once you put everything together, the collection of policies that negatively affect women, because you think about, you know, if you are a single mother, right, with a newborn, and more than likely, you're probably in a low-wage job, possibly working as a server in a, in a, in a restaurant, yep. right? And of course, you're not going to get any, any parental leave, or if you do, it's, it's very little. And women across the board, you know, make lower wages, even if you aren't in the service industry. You know, the, there's just the collection of policies across this nation just do not support women. Well, that's exactly right. And one of the other things that I think is critical to understand here is um, I think our D.C. Council is actually in avoiding swift action on some of these issues to really support women, what we're doing is we're making it harder for families and for people to remain in our community. And DC, we're experiencing a housing crisis right now, especially when it comes to affordable housing. So if you've been to DC lately, you've probably seen a lot of cranes everywhere and new buildings and glitzy buildings. I think they do a lot to bring you know new life into the city, which is great. The problem is that we are displacing tens of thousands of longtime residents as a result. And so when we make it harder for people to earn a living wage, to be able to remain here and remain um, contributing members to our community, that in and of itself is not inclusive and goes against, I think, our progressive ideals as a city. So the other important fact that I should mention is that DC also has the highest per capita rate of homelessness out of any city in, in the nation. Yeah, And oftentimes, you know, we are doing a better job um, in the last 
you know, couple of years, advocates have really tried to examine the impact of homelessness on um, women and vice versa. And who is experiencing homelessness? Why is it happening? And what we're finding is that there are a lot of, you know, social services that just are not meeting the needs of and the demands of a growing population of homeless residents. You know, I find DC particularly interesting because, you know, there's this dichotomy, there's, there's lots of wealth, Right. In, in D.C. Yeah. And then you have this extreme end with poverty. Absolutely. I'm having conversations every single day with people who are from all walks of life. And when I knock on a door and I hear somebody tell me, you know, I, I give them my um, my pitch and then I, I say, is there anything that is top of mind for you? Big picture, small picture. And when I hear the words, nope, everything's going great. Um, you know, my answer to that is I'm, I'm really glad that you are happy. And I think that's wonderful. And I am running because, you know, we as a community owe it to our neighbors to not leave anybody behind. And, you know, I don't say it outright, but it's true. When I talk to my husband at night, it's it's a privilege to be able to think that everything is going just fine. And it's a privilege to think that that the status quo is just is okay by us because we know that it's not. And just as often as I'm having, more often, I should say, as I'm having these conversations with residents who are doing just fine, I'm having 10 times those interactions with people who are really struggling with tears in their eyes, who are a car accident away from finding themselves homeless or an illness away from finding themselves struggling and bankrupt or what have you. And it's tragic, but to know that they find a lot of hope and optimism in having a candidate that is willing to take on, you know, an establishment that is motivating in a way that I can't really describe. Um, but it keeps me going. Yeah, I, I think one of the most heartbreaking things is that people who fall into those categories, you know, the homeless or people who are barely making a, a living wage, right? Those are the voices that, that you know, people who are running politicians don't hear very often, right? And they're the ones who need the most help. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, you know, what I've seen in our council is, you know, we had a homelessness bill that went through the council late last year. And we had an amendment that would have expanded a program for rapid rehousing and which is a program that does what you think it does when you fall into homelessness you are put into housing whether that's a motel or a shelter what have you um, or rather an apartment and this amendment would have cost 17 million dollars to expand rapid rehousing it failed by one vote and the council member that i am running against is the deciding vote on that the other thing that happened last year, there was a vote to not provide private family bathrooms for victims of domestic violence, specifically families. So if you're a family, you fled your home, uh, living in, in a shelter, an emergency shelter, you still have to share the restroom with other adults. And that can be really scary. That can also be for a child, you know, it means having the parent go with them to the restroom. And it's having to sort of have that kind of go through that trauma and then you know, find yourself sort of hyper vigilant in a new place with strangers and adults that you don't know and having to use the restroom, which is supposed to be a pretty private, you know, setting is difficult. And why we didn't vote on that is beyond me. I think it really questions my my representative and also just the values on our DC council. And then further, like, We've erected barriers to access emergency shelter. DC, you know, we have pretty generous 
I guess, laws or protections for people to be able to access emergency shelter if it's like very, very cold or very, very hot, which is good. But the problem that many politicians have cited is that, well, we're taking on a lot of the homeless population from Virginia and Maryland. And so what they've done in response is to require that homeless residents seeking shelter show proof of residency before they are admitted into a shelter. And, you know, I don't know about you, but if I'm a domestic violence survivor, I'm fleeing my house. The last thing I'm pulling is my lease or my utility bill before I head out the door. And so it's those kinds of like boneheaded, short-sighted policies that really make me scratch my head, but also just you know, outraged. <laughs> well, it's heartless. Uh, I mean, again, like, how do you yeah. justify that? You know, again, and so here, I mean, here's the thing. So, you know, when you're talking about domestic violence and women who, you know, they end up homeless because of domestic violence situations, it's the women and children who bear the brunt of this. You know, the, yes. the perpetrator, the, the man is still probably in the home mm-hmm. and, you know, doesn't have to worry about, you know, getting to work or getting the child to school or child care or the fact that they don't have private bathrooms, just probably still comfortably in the home, right? Yeah, it's it angers me too. Yeah, I mean, and I recognize we're speaking in general terms here, but I, I agree with you. I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing such a shakeup in our elections nationwide, where you have women who are sick of it and sick of seeing these decisions being made and not having a seat at the table to make sure that their voices are represented. So in DC, what we've got is a city council that is made up of 13 members. Only four are women. And DC has never, ever in its history elected a Latino. And so if elected, I would be the first. And when you think of things like, uh, I know you and I had talked about a couple weeks ago, the, the tampon tax or the diaper tax, or when you think about things like language access, You know, there's a reason why these bills are languishing in committees and there's nobody really championing these efforts. And it's because you don't have the kind of representation that will push and advocate tirelessly on their behalf. And so I am really optimistic. You probably have conversations like this all the time with candidates. I am extremely optimistic at the energy and the wave of new people coming into politics, coming from all sorts of backgrounds. And it's not just women, it's um, people of color, it's people from different walks of life. And I think it's an enormous spoon to our democracy to have diverse voices participating and civically engaged. When I when I hear this, I am encouraged, but I'm also worried about one thing that we haven't really addressed is the way that the, the media, the, the imbalance in the mm. media between candidates and, and women candidates. Oh gosh. I so I just had an interview last week where the person asked me, so why why did you decide to run? Why didn't your husband run instead? Oh no. And Sorry. That, yeah, right? It's <laughs> like, um you're interviewing me, not my husband. I'm the <laughs> candidate. I'm on, I'm the one on the ballot. So like it's been that overt. I've also gotten I mean, and I'm sure you hear this from candidates all the time, too. I've gotten lots of pushback, people telling me that I'm not qualified, that I should run for school board, that, you know, I'm I need to take a number or that 
Oh, it, it's pretty disgusting, um, especially when you think about the kinds of people that you're fighting on their behalf and the voices that you're trying to elevate. Every time I hear those kinds of roadblocks or that kind of criticism, it's validation for me that I am doing the right thing. I mean, it's funny. I don't know if you've ever seen. Um, I'll, I'll just mention this like little caveat, but my husband and I joke about it. If you've ever seen that movie, Grumpy or Old Men. Um, <laughs> no. OK, well, there's a scene where like this uh, Burgess Meredith is like hitting on this like old lady and she goes to him, I find you disgusting. And then he says, as long as you find me, dear. And so I kind of feel like if I wasn't making waves and if I wasn't a serious threat, people wouldn't be trying to tear me down with their words. And so it's, it's a nice validation for me. Oh, that's a good way to see it. The other thing that's really come up for me is that I, my daughter is also a part of this campaign, Um, and people have asked me about my comfort level with making her sort of like my running mate. And the truth is she's a big reason why I'm running. And people always ask me, you know, how is it that you juggle everything, raising a daughter, this and that it's hard, but it's totally worth it. Because when I look back on this time, no matter how things shake out, the last thing I want to feel is regret, but I also want her to grow up having seen me modeling for her that no matter the odds, when you see injustice, when you see vulnerable populations that are really suffering and you can do something about it, you do something about it. You jump into the race, you do what you can to help. Um, and that, that's the kind of value that my parents instilled in me and my brother. And it's exactly this, the type of values that we, my husband and I, um, as parents are instilling in our daughter. Yeah, I've heard that often, right? Um, You know, after the 2016 election and, you know, any woman who's, you know, taken a pivot in her life, um, usually it had something to do with with family or with their their children. I mean, for me, for instance, you know, after I went to the to the march in D.C. Mm -hmm. and, you know, I I had to reevaluate, like, what am I going to tell my child that I did? Right. right. <laughs> and, um, and and just about this moment, just explain how this happened. Right. This is not what I was prepared to explain to him. I was not comfortable just saying that. Well, then I then I just kind of sat around. <laughs> well, it's amazing, though. I mean, we have this army of women crusaders who are jumping into the race or are supporting those who are. And so, like, I, you know, I don't know if you felt like this after you had your kid, but and I, I've been pretty out front on this, but I really struggled after having my daughter Physically, the recovery was really hard. We had trouble figuring out breastfeeding. We had trouble sort of, um, I had trouble uh, with postpartum anxiety. And that was like really confusing until I actually saw somebody about it. You know, I remember thinking at the time, like the sisterhood has failed me. Nobody told me it was going to be this way and it was going to be so hard. And, And now I feel like I am in a different place in life where I am working my hardest to um, run a campaign that I am proud of and that is just and does that I'm doing everything I can to get elected to help people. And I feel like that feeling of the sisterhood has, you know, failed me that I've totally abandoned that because I am surrounded 24 seven by powerful women, people of color, people from all walks of life, from all religions, everything. And they're all in my corner. And I feel so supported in a way that, you know, I never truly have before. And it's incredible to just have that 
you know, support system behind me. And also just know that for a lot of people, I'm making a difference and I am challenging the status quo and it's meaningful. So you're running against an incumbent who is Charles Allen, right? Yep. And, you know, he's been in the position for a few years, mm-hmm. right? And, and from, from what I've read, he's still fairly popular. Mm-hmm. So what are people missing? Yeah, I would challenge the notion that he's popular. I think he's self-promoting in his materials and he should be, right? He's got to appeal to voters. But what I'll say is uh, what you don't get with my opponent is somebody who has a, a deep record of public service, who has deep substantive background in healthcare, but also just has experience working in the legislative and executive um, bodies of government. And what you also are missing, I think, is that people are looking for for somebody who's inspiring, for somebody who can carry the banner on progressive issues. And when you look at some of my opponents' votes or even just the D.C. Council in general, we are severely lacking in um, women representing us as well as women of color. To the best of my knowledge, I am the only person in any of the races locally that is speaking in both English and Spanish and putting information out in English and Spanish. It's It baffles me to know that nobody's really doing that uh, simply because, you know, one in five families in D.C. speak a language other than English in the home. And that population continues to grow. And I think people are thirsty for somebody who is fresh and new. One of the things that you'll, if you look into some of our local politics and what's happening right now is we have an education system that has been mired in scandal after scandal over the last several months, graduating students who missed three months of their senior year or who are illiterate or what have you. And, you know, people who work for a public school system who commute in from Maryland, sending their kids to DC public schools, even though they haven't done any back pay for it. So there, there are these like um, examples of a local government that is lacking in accountability and transparency. And so when you have establishment candidates who continue to get elected off of the same voting coalition, the same donor lists, the city sets itself up to be ripe for these kinds of abuses of power and these kinds of scandals and this pay for play that we see happening, not just in DC, across the country, I'm sure. But for me as a candidate, what I'm seeing is I just keep peeling back layers of the onion and it feels ickier and ickier. And I get more and more convinced every day that having new blood in our local government is exactly what we need. And I think others are coming to the same conclusion. Yes, I agree. (laughs) Well, Lisa Hunter, thank you so much for joining me today. I wish you all the best. And it's been a true pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Jen. Thanks so much for everything you're doing. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider becoming a supporter of the electorate. Visit us at electorate.com and click on the donation link at the top of the page. The electorate is now available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Stitcher. Please consider subscribing using your favorite podcast platform. Also, please like us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash electorate. And until next time, keep up the good fight. <laughs>